I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, uh, where we will uh, continue our, our study of the book of Galatians, begun several weeks ago, t- today looking at verses 11 to 21. If you have not pulled out the study notes from your bulletin, I would encourage you to do that. I know they'll be helpful to you along the way. Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 21. The art, of course, on the bulletin and on the screens, we're getting used to uh, telling a story as the book of Galatians does, not only looking at the blueprint, but uh, the ship under full sail and the need at times to go back and look again at the blueprint. And indeed, that's taking place in the text. One of the things that you know as you worship with us is my commitment to, as a routine, as a regular basis, we preach uh, through Bible books, not all the time, but, but routinely we do that. And one of the reasons we do that is to make sure that as God's word brings topics to the front, that we address those as well. And today is an example of that. There's a, a situation that's presented here in the text, and it brings some cultural issues to mind today. And so it's very possible that depending on who you are and uh, things going on in your life and your background, you might be uncomfortable with some of these things that I'm going to say today. And I just want to let you know it's okay. You can walk out of here really blisteringly mad at me or disagreeing with the way I say something that I, I may say. But I, we come to the text, the Word of God, and please make sure that if there's some moment of discomfort that it's, it's going to be with me, but that you submit yourself to what the Word of God teaches. Okay, so that's that's what we do, and uh, so I, I just say all of that uh, to ask for your your help and your your awareness of our need collectively for the Spirit of God to help us. Culture collides with the Bible, doesn't it? Uh, very very often we, we live in culture. We're affected by it. We're we're steeped in our family cultures and our American culture and so on, or wherever we're raised, but. We, we absorb culture, and many, many times the Bible addresses things, and sometimes we don't notice where we're at with them, and I, I'm eager for this today. Um, back in 1963, a number of things happened. Uh, every year, it seems as uh, there's something that happens of world significance. Indeed, 1963, one of those, uh, I turned two. Uh, I realize that that's not significant, but it is. I mention it because... As a two-year-old, uh, that age, going through the, you know, the 60s, I missed a lot of things happening in the world. That's why I mentioned my age. It's born in 1961, so I was two in 1963, uh, November, when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, 1963 saw another significant event, and if you, uh, many others, certainly, but one I'll, I'll mention it was three months earlier than that, August 28th. Is that ring a bell? Okay, I'll tell you. August 28th, 1963, was the day that Reverend Martin Luther King delivered the famous I Have a Dream speech. That was the same year. And of course, that did not stand uh, by itself. That was part of a, a longer process that we call the Civil Rights Movement. And again, preceded my birth. And because I was raised in a home that did not have a television till I was much older, I grew up unaware of things happening in the world. My parents simply didn't tell us. Uh, it was not till junior high that I became aware that there was some war going on. Oh, you hear little bits, but I didn't really know. So it was wonderful. You go outside and you play, and you're not encumbered by some of those things. But the world, my goodness, was in turmoil, of course, through the 60s. 
Uh, I was aware of some elements of that as the guy in the, the little Volkswagen van with flowers on it came to actually to marry my oldest sister. That didn't happen. That did not happen, by the way. <laughs> so I was aware of some things, but not all of it. But uh, my goodness sakes, the civil rights movement. Uh, some of you are older than me and will remember um, 1954. Brown versus the Board of Education. Man, what a big deal, right? Some of you will remember 1955 and a 42-year-old young lady named Rosa Parks who said, no, not going to give up my seat on a bus to a white man. Not today. And all that came out of that, you'll remember that following that event, uh, certainly that was the time that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., 26-year-old pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, uh, found himself in a place of leadership that it would appear he hadn't asked for, but he was certainly there. Um, interesting to me, as we together reflect on those things, some of us having lived through them uh, and having opinions on all kinds of things, um, the impact on world on the world, uh, the world that was changing so rapidly during that time, sometimes we get lost on things of history. What I mean by that is this. Um, um, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., uh, well, in many areas, his theology would not match up with ours. And well, there would be a number of areas of his private life with which we would have concern as well. He's a figure in history to be grappled with because he raised to the fore significant issues uh, that I have a dream speech was bathed in biblical illusions, wasn't it? And it caused everybody to think and be uncomfortable and to have to examine their own hearts. Uh, one writer uh, reflecting on the days of segregation. Uh, again, uh, I seem to be, uh, as a child in the 60s, I, I just, here in the Northwest, didn't know all that was going on in the world. But this writer s speaks about segregation like this. He says, segregation was the world I grew up in. That is, legally mandated separation of races at all kinds of levels. It had an unbelievably oppressive and demeaning effect on the African-American community, and it had a deadening effect on the conscience of the white community. One looks back on it with shame and disgrace. Separate schools, separate motels, separate restrooms, separate swimming pools, separate drinking fountains. How could you more clearly communicate the lie that being black was like a disease? It was a despicable time in our history, and most of the Christian church was tragically silent and consenting in the evil. So how am I doing at stirring it up today? Uh-huh, all right. Well, all of this leads us to the text today. Believe it or not, it really does. Uh, on a personal level, on some of these things, I remember in the, in the 60s, uh, the little school that I went to, grade school, was... I was only aware of one African-American family. And because I missed a lot of the stuff going on in the world, their, their son, who was, was our age, he was part of my friend group. There were about five of us grade school boys who hung out, played basketball and football and kind of ran around. We always wanted him on our team because he was really fast. Sometimes we called him lightning. He was fast. So you, if you're going to go deep with a football pass, you wanted him because he, he'd go fast. And I guess I missed the memo that we weren't supposed to like each other. I'm grateful for that, having missed that. In recent days, though, 
I don't know what, I'm going to mention some movies. I don't know if you watch movies uh, or if you've watched these. Uh, some of us have watched The Help. I remember watching that the first time and thinking, good night, did we really do that? I, I missed it. I mean, I, I lived up here my whole, uh, plead ignorance if you wish. Hidden Figures, 2017. It was a great movie. Some African-American scientists who were really, really smart at math. Some ladies who corrected the math. I think it was NASA. That sucker would have blown up and gone south, missed the moon. I forget what they were working on, but these African-American ladies went in and went, no, uh, pi r squared, no, that's not, the, and it goes like this. Good movie. Green Book. Again, I'm not recommending or approving of anything I mentioned here in this little section. I don't know, all right? But I, troubling. I didn't, I didn't know there was a green book. A green book meaning a little code book to tell African Americans traveling in the South during those days where it was safe to stay for you. What, what rundown places you could eat at. How to stay on your own side of the tracks. Wow. Does the word of God address these things? Well, guess what? In today's text, we find a collision between culture and race and ethnicity. And sometimes in reading the Bible, we, we, just, we read it in spiritual, with spiritual glasses on. We, we think Jew, Gentile, we think, well, those are just two different, you know, these guys, you know, knew Jesus, so to speak, and they didn't. Oh, let me tell you, there's more to it than that. And there is a collision of magnitude, great magnitude here in today's text that where the Apostle Paul says, hey, what's this with the gospel? Does it affect your attitude or does it not? And does it affect how, how you treat other people who are different from you? Well, apparently let's talk about it. So I want us to talk about it too. So I'm going to pray for us for God's help and we will read the text and deal with it in two sections uh, you have your Bibles open. Galatians two eleven to 14 describes a confrontation, a moment when things went wrong. And then you read starting verses uh, verse 15 down to verse 21, Paul's commentary on that. Paul, who was seeking uh, to get it right. And we, we come today to the word of God. So I want to pray for us, uh, if you would join me in that. Our Father, uh, we are sometimes surprised as we come to the word of God and find uh, it address things that are so contemporary. We live in a world where, where these things are very, very real and where we, we all often get things wrong. Our Father, I pray that you would help us to, to see today in this text, from this text, where where our lives and attitudes and hearts may not be right. We'd glory in the gospel. We'd see Jesus here all over this text. Father, use this time today to shape us, I pray, individuals and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to read the text as we read the word of God together. Galatians chapter 2, starting verse 11. <clears throat> we read this. But when Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That would be that, that Jewish crowd. It would appear the group lobbying to, to, to keep people believing in Jesus and obeying the law. Now, verse 13, the rest of the Jews then acted hypocritically along with him so that, so that even Barnabas, you see this? Even Barnabas, the good guy, come on, Barnabas. Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their, look at this, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. There it is. I said to Peter, to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, it would appear then a shift in the text, his commentary on this. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified, declared right by God, that is, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. God's word. Wow. Well, as I have on your study sheet, if you keep that handy, that'd be good. Little uh, uh, brief comments about where we've been, and then a little paragraph about today's text, this moment in church history where the early believers were working out the implications of the gospel. The gospel is more than about getting your soul to heaven. It's about how you live for Jesus here, what the gospel looks like as people relate to one another. And I have a statement here in bold that I would love to have you uh, notice and mull over with me. The cross of Jesus, and of course by that I mean the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all of, all of that package that we call the gospel, the cross of Jesus, properly understood and applied, confronts racial and cultural prejudice, humbling all of us. I believe that the gospel of Jesus is the corrective, the, the missing corrective in our world, properly understood, that, that teaches us how to love other people who are not like us. I believe the gospel is what the world needs. So 11 to 14 then, this is a moment. This is a moment. And, uh, you know, I just want to describe it and kind of work through this. It's, more, it's written a little more like narrative in, 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 rather than commentary specifically about uh, theology. But Paul's describing a moment. He says, Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. He stood condemned. Well, what's going on here? And if you'll excuse my putting it into terms we understand, uh, tongue-in-cheek, etc., I picture this, uh, a scene here, maybe like a church potluck. Okay, maybe not like a potluck, but they're eating together, okay? Um, 
we know that the early church ate together and maybe they didn't do potluck style, I don't know. But, but Peter understood the gospel correctly, it would appear, before this moment. He'd lived through the book of Acts. He'd seen the spirit of God come on people of all nations and races, language backgrounds, day of Pentecost. Amazing. Peter had been the one the spirit of God had sent to Cornelius. Right? And he was the one who, who saw, no, the Gentiles, that is, the nations, the non-Jewish people. And you remember me mentioning the last week or two, the, the, the term Gentile, the Greek language group behind it, ethnos, ethne, could easily be translated the world. It's the non-Jewish crowd. That's everybody else. Okay? Peter understood that the gospel was for the nations. So... Up until the moment here described at the church potluck, Peter correctly understood he could sit at anybody's table. And so when he's eating his fried chicken and lasagna, he's looking around saying, where's Ray? He sat with everybody. But then came the day that this certain group, now there's some debate about who they, who they were. Were they just another group of Jewish people who were not so enlightened? Were they these Judaizers? Is that who they were, who were coming? Those people that said, yes, Christ, but you must obey the Old Testament law, of which circumcision was a key part. Is that who that was? Well, these guys came, and lo and behold, Peter, a, the leading apostle, he's kind of maybe whistling, picks up his plate of food and wanders from the Gentile table over to the Jewish crowd. And before long, all the other Jewish guys are heading over there to sit with the Jewish people. And even Barnabas is over here, and suddenly you've got a room with everybody else and then this group of Jewish people. And Paul walks in and goes, whoa, excuse me here, folks. What's going on? What are you doing over there? Now, we're told in the text some details, like verse 12. Peter didn't just do that. He did it because he was afraid. He was afraid. Now, if you look at your study notes with me for just a moment, I want to comment on some things, catch us up. Great Apostle Peter doesn't notice his cultural, I call it habits, cultural habits that are not in step with the gospel. I don't know his heart at this moment. I don't know. I'm just saying we need brothers and sisters to help us see our blind spots. Do you have any, friend? Do you have any blind spots? Do you have any blind spots on race? Apparently, but that's okay, brother. That's all right. Tim, it's only you, man. We're friends. Yeah, tell them to stop. I know, those Bible apps, they want to start reading to you. It's crazy that way. Uh-huh. There you go. Good job there. Get a younger person. Good job. Thanks, Michelle. <laughs> you did. I know what to do with iPads. Well done. Blind spots. We all have blind spots. I... I put the little parenthetical phrase here. It's a reference to a TV commercial. We go nose blind. You've seen that commercial? Uh, it's some cleaning product. I'm not here to PR it. I don't remember what it was, but it, you know, it shows a teenage boy's room with, it, it smells like, you know, a teenage boy's room. He's gone nose blind. He doesn't notice that there's a, that it stinks in here. And we do this too, don't we? You know, sometimes you do it. Some of your cars smell like French fries. They like got a big collision with a Big Mac and you don't even notice. And people get in your car and go, man, drive through, eh? And you're going, what? Because uh, you're, you're nose blind. You're used to the smell of French fries or whatever's going on in your car. Dog. Oh, goodness. Wet dog. You don't notice, right? You think it's a smell of love. It's not. It's your dog. We go nose blind, don't we? And sometimes we go nose blind to issues like how we treat other people, the words that come out of our mouth that betray something secret in our hearts about how we despise a brother or sister. 
Sometimes we don't even notice. We're nose blind to things that we were raised with or things in our own hearts. Man, fear, I mentioned. Fear. Peter's, it says here Peter was afraid. Peter was afraid. Fear. Fear Fear can be our friend. Much like being afraid of getting run over by a bus. It's a good thing. Fear of burning yourself on a hot stove, it can cause us to sin. What, what do you think Peter was afraid of here? What's he afraid of? I mean, are they going to kill him? Well, no. He's not afraid for his life. What's he afraid of? Yeah, criticism. Their, their, their displeasure that somebody's going to look down at him for hanging out with the Gentiles. He's, he's, he's afraid of the same things, listen, that you and I are sometimes afraid of. We don't, we don't like it when people have displeasure with us, do we? Certainly not on issues like this. I mean, come on. Peter was afraid. I don't know if he told Paul that later. Um, clearly, they had a relationship after this event. This wasn't the end of things. But it says he was afraid. He's afraid of those guys who came, afraid of their displeasure, afraid of what they were going to think, afraid of what they were going to say, or as we say today, afraid of being judged. He figured the easiest thing for me is just sit over there. Is that a problem? Let me ask you, is that a problem? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, it is a problem. It is a problem. Wow. Paul calls Peter's behavior, verse 13, hypocritical, doesn't he? You say you believe the gospel. Sure doesn't look like you, like you believe that. Sure doesn't look like it in the way you treat people of another cultural group. You say you believe the gospel. I'm not so sure you do. Behavior doesn't match your words. I list here a number of things. Sometimes it's arrogance, pride, habit, background, family background, I know blindness, maybe ignorance, just, just didn't see it. I don't know. I don't know. So coming back to the text, the rest of the Jews, even Barnabas, come on, no, don't do it. So verse 14, Paul then, different temperament than Barnabas, certainly, he says, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the gospel, boy, that's a key phrase. I said to Peter before them all, now, watch this, watch this statement now. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The, the idea is this. Up until these guys showed up, you lived like a Gentile, which meant you were free to hang out with anybody. You were. You hung out with anybody. So if you live like a Gentile, in that sense, not like a Jew, the Jewish people keep themselves separate. If you were able to mix with anybody up until like three hours ago, how come you're hanging out with these guys that want the Gentiles to live like you, live like the Jews? What's up with that? Hypocritical, two-faced? I mean, now, I want to ask you a couple of things here. Um, based on your temperament, we're all different this way when it comes to uncomfortable confrontation. What do you think this was like? Can, can you picture this? Okay, it's a group, obviously. We don't know how big a group. Was it 20 or 30 or 50 or 150? How big was it? It was, I'm just asking, the text doesn't tell us. Was this a thunderous moment where the Apostle Paul stepped up like on a podium and said, hey, everybody, listen up. Peter, is that what it was? Was it, was it an in-your-face moment? I mean, he says, I opposed him to his face. It doesn't say, as we say, in your face. Was this a moment with a, was it a, was it a loud moment? Was it Paul red-faced? Was it Paul with his arm around his shoulder and saying, Peter, if you're, if you're you know, living like this, then how, what, what's going on? Was that what it was? I don't know. It sounds confrontive. We're going to all read this just a little different. Those of you who are a little more of that, going to tell you. 
You're picturing Paul just, I think, verbally, he's on the mat. And Peter Squirman, I know. Others of you who are a little more Barnabas-like, you know, a little more give him a hug-oriented, you're, you're going to picture Paul going, oh, Peter. Oh, Peter. Peter, Peter, what a great friend. Listen, friend. And you're going you're gonna to couch it in much more reconciling terms. The text doesn't tell us, nor does it tell us, what immediately happened. Did, the, did everybody in the room go, oh, what were we thinking and switch tables? We're not told. Was it an uncomfortable, awkward silence? Were they mad at each other for a month until they worked it through? Do you know? We're not told. Um, sometimes after a confrontation, people quickly get it and fix their behavior. Sometimes people need a season of reflection, don't they? To go, huh, you know what? You're right. You're right. And we're not told how it worked here, but I, I think it's kind of interesting to think about. Uh, God and Paul apparently didn't think it was necessary to tell us. Um, I want to talk just for a moment at this juncture about what I referenced earlier, this, this Jew-Gentile poison. That's why this is such a big deal, this calling it out. Um, we're aware, I think, from our study of New Testament that the Jewish crowd had a certain uh, religious, cultural, ethnic pride. Pastor Tyler several weeks ago mentioned that at the time in the Jewish nation, Israel, you would have, uh, being Jewish was both culture and religion, wasn't it? So they were, they were wed. There was a lot to this. You go back to, I think it's Romans 3. There are a lot of elements there that Paul would talk about. There were points of pride. You had the prophets and so on. Paul references this in the book of Philippians as well, his own heritage. He says, man, Pharisee of Pharisees, et cetera, et cetera. Man, I can trace my lineage back. So there's, there's the Jewish crowd. Then there's the everybody else crowd. Um, you remember Jesus makes reference to washing of pots and things that are picked up in the market. Why do you think they did that? Was it because they were, actually, they were concerned about germs? No, to use today's terms, they were more concerned about cooties. Like Gentile cooties. I mean, you don't know who touched this, and they might not have been pure people, so it wasn't about germs. It was more, we should wash that first, ceremonially, and our hands, because we went to the market. You never know. Uh, you, you've heard us speak about, uh, just in terms of uh, Bible geography, the, the Samaritan area. Uh, Israel was divided. There was a good place of Jewishness up north, Sea of Galilee, Samaria, and then Jerusalem down below. The Jewish people didn't really like the Samaritans. Was it just religiously driven? Well, it was. There was religious issues, but but even worse, they were half breeds. They were not. They were not genetically purebred Jewish people. They, that was the Samaritan crowd. In fact, the feelings were so bad from the Jewish folks that it, you think about this. Sometimes, in going from the north to the south, if you had time, you might cross the Jordan River, go down the other side to go to Jerusalem. That would be like us going to Portland via eastern Washington because of those people, you know, the Centralia people. Anything to avoid them. So let's make a nice little trip to Yakima. No, it was that strong of a feeling. Sometimes you're in a hurry, you say, just kind of close your eyes and drive. I'm saying it with a touch of humor, but it was about like that. Those people, not ethnically pure, they, they didn't come with the, all the good stuff we've got. 
And along comes Jesus in the gospel. Now, this wasn't entirely new. Because the Old Testament talks about the nations. And God's love for the nations. But in a whole new way, upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the door was flung open. And the command given to go into all the world, preach the gospel to the nations, the ethnic groups. And then you have this whole New Testament discussion. It's all over the place. Here, certainly, Ephesians, Ephesians 2 and 3, and Colossians, and, and example after example, where God was bringing Jew and Gentile together. Can you imagine? Those people. God has invited them into, what is it? Into our group. Huh. And not everybody liked it. And there were collisions. And there were people who got grumpy. This was a big deal. It's talked about a lot. Wow. So what is the source, as James would say, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What is the source of prejudice and racism and ethnocentrism that says my culture's better? What is the source? Yeah. We are sinners, all of us. Whatever our background, whatever color our skin, whatever our, our ethnic heritage back a generation or two, listen, we are sinners, all of us. And this is betrayed uh, perhaps in, in no greater way than in some of these areas. Uh, ethnocentrism, the idea that my, my ethnic group, sometimes my cultural group, is smarter or better. What do we say? We travel, and we notice these people who drive their cars on the, what do we say? On the wrong side of the road. No, we, make, we use words of moral judgment. They don't have, they're driving on the wrong side of the road. What's wrong with those people? They, they, they eat it raw, we cook it. We would never eat whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. They eat it raw. There's some organ. They eat. They think that's great. I don't mean the musical instrument. I'm talking about, you know, stuff people eat. You go, man, I would never eat. What are they, what are they thinking? Man, they eat the wrong stuff. We, we think of ourselves, our group, my way of doing it, my way of rearranging the furniture is clearly superior to yours. I don't know what you're thinking. You know what? It's not just about the nations and ethnic groups. It's all about that. But this comes right into our homes, doesn't it? And into our marriages. Why would you possibly do that? Everybody who's smart would know that I do it this way. None of you would have had that conversation in your homes, I'm sure. Because sometimes there's a collision between men and women. I hear men sometimes saying things about women that are disgraceful, that demean women. And guess what, ladies? Guilty. Guilty, too. I hear women saying things about men, how dumb they are or how inept they are or how, you know, you go right on down the list. We do this to each other. My dear friends, these things ought not to be so whoever we speak against. Now, this is not in step with the gospel. This is not okay stuff. That's why Paul takes the moment to, to blow it up and say, let's talk about the gospel. Well, now, in the ESV uh, that I have, uh, there are quotation marks around verse 14, setting that apart as the specific words of Paul. Some versions don't give those quotation marks, and it's difficult to tell when you get to verse 15 and what follows, how much of this is Paul's speech, and how much of it's his commentary on the event. Kind of hard to tell. 
The ESV suggests that verse 14 is the moment of confrontation, and then starting at verse 15 is, is like a discussion of it. And I, I'm, so I'm, just, I'm treating it that way as well. So I want to move to verses 15 to 21. And you'll notice my, my heading here. Gospel unity is fueled by gospel humility. And I, I believe the gospel truly calls us to humility in all of our relationships with people. So I look again at verse 15. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. I pause to say he's not, he's not trying to suggest theologically that Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish people, are sinners in the sense that the Jewish people are not sinners. That's not the point here. What he's saying is this, track with this. As a Jewish person, he was raised with the law. The Ten Commandments. There are boundaries. There are rules. Moses is a good guy, a hero, right? We got this cool religious heritage. And so we were raised with, he would say, with religious teaching. We're raised in faith. And then there's all these other people who weren't. The Gentile, the nations, the Gentile, the non-Jewish people who weren't raised with moral boundaries so much. They were raised outside of law. He calls them Gentile sinners. So, raised in faith, not raised in faith. I'm making some uh, interpretations there, I suppose. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, he says, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified Go to my notes there, if you will, and, and see if this uh, first little bullet point doesn't capture this. Whether, you're, whether we're raised with a religious background, in this case Jewish or not, the only way, Paul is saying, the only way anyone comes to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. The works of the law, the works of the law do not give anyone, are you ready, a leg up, a head start, advanced placement, or any kind of special privilege. Okay? I, and I, I hasten to say, to be raised in faith is wonderful. If you're a person today who's a parent, you're, you know Christ is your Savior, you want to raise your kids in faith. Absolutely. That was our goal as well as, as parents. However, that doesn't mean that your children raised in Sunday school are, are three steps closer to heaven than somebody who wasn't. Everybody who gets to God's heaven gets there by grace through faith. Everybody comes the same way. Huh? Now, right now, it doesn't say it doesn't matter. Don't, don't bring your kids to. That's not the point. It's saying everybody needs to humble themselves before a holy God and trust Christ as their Savior from sin. Maybe you can quote the Ten Commandments, all kinds of things, books of the Bible backwards and forwards, and guess what? You need to humble yourself before God and trust Christ as your Savior. Memorizing John 3.16, as wonderful as that is, is not the ticket to heaven. Trusting Christ is. Now, this, there's a knife here that cuts a whole lot of different ways. Again, I'm not in any way wanting to undermine the value of raising our kids and living in faith. Not, not that I'm, I'm saying this. There's no room for spiritual pride. And there's no room, please get the other half of this, there's no room as well for anybody to feel like they're a spiritual loser if you weren't raised in faith. I have been around enough to know that. I'll amplify that in a minute. Sometimes people who didn't, don't have a church background through no fault of their own or through fault of their own sometimes come to church and feel really stupid. 
because everybody else is throwing around $5 words and has got stuff memorized and knows where to find stuff instantly, right, without using the index. And before long, you're starting to go, you know what, I'm just not good at this. You know what the gospel says, whether you got it all figured out or whether you don't. Listen, you come to God through faith in Jesus. You get there the same way as anybody else. I tell you what, I, I, you know, if you worship here, you hear me tell little bits of my story. This, I was mulling this over this week and saying, yeah, I resonate with, with that part. Because um, you know that my mom, I've told my family story, my mom came to Christ after she married my dad. My dad was not into this religious stuff, never was. So my mom took all six of us kids to church, did her best as a spiritually single mom. And I remember going to church and seeing, you know, that kid, his dad's an elder, and this kid's dad is a Sunday school teacher. I'm thinking of dads because mine wasn't there, not devaluing moms. This guy's dad was the pastor. That's about it because our church was small. And my family, then there was my family. And we didn't come all the time, didn't come every time the door was open because my dad said, Sunday morning's fine, but let's not get, you know, let's not go crazy on this religious stuff. Okay, serious. That's why we didn't go to a lot of stuff. We went down for it. So my mom wanted to honor my dad. We didn't do a lot of those other church things. We weren't there every time the door opened. And somehow along the way, nobody says these things, right? Nobody says it. Nobody intends it to come across. But for me, as a little guy, I remember thinking, this is obvious. God uses those people. He doesn't use people like me. I'm the spiritual loser here, right? His grandpa was a missionary. His dad's this. My grandpa was an alcoholic, Okay, I get it. The A team and then the, then the others. Right? Imagine my surprise as a teenager to discover. No, it was, it was shocking to me. God used me in a particular time, in a particular place, and I knew it. I went, oh. God used me. Huh? Who knew? Who knew? I thought, I thought, I thought they were the A team. And, and, you know, then there's the leftovers guy. Man, I, I'll never forget. Wow. No room for spiritual pride. Wonderful to be raised in faith. Wonderful. But it doesn't mean you don't need Jesus. See? You, you, some of us, maybe in this room, maybe, maybe raised in faith, gone to church your whole life, got the little button from going to Sunday school forever. I don't know. If you're trusting those things to get you into God's heaven, you're not going. See? You've got to trust Christ as your Savior from sin. Just like anybody else. Uh, again, not knocking Sunday school. It's good. It doesn't get you to God's heaven. <laughs> Whoever you are, whatever your background, winner, loser, in the world's estimation, or yours, you come to God through faith in Jesus. That's what Paul's arguing for. That's what the point of the text is. Man, I love it. Wow. By the works of the law, no one will be declared righteous. Verse 16. Now, we go on. A few more verses to kind of to, to wrestle with here a little bit. Verse 17, he says, but if in our endeavor to be justified, and again, I, I describe that term, justify, to be declared righteous by a holy God. It's a legal term. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, if, we're, if we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? No, certainly not. God forbid. May it never be. Let me say a word about verse 7. What's this about? What's this? He's saying if, if, in our, if we're working to be found right before God and preaching the gospel, 
apart from works. If these other guys are correct that say you have to be circumcised and keep the law, if they're correct, then, then we're doing it wrong because we're preaching the gospel without works. He says, is Christ then preaching Christ? Is the gospel then a servant of sin? Is, are we with Jesus on the wrong side? And what's he say? Uh, no, may it never be. God forbid. No, that's not it. Christ is not on the wrong side of this. And I'm with him and we're not on the wrong side. Uh, may it never be. If, if that's a familiar phrase in Pauline literature, it is. It should be. That's the, the, the same two words he, he uses to hit the pulpit that you find in Romans chapter 6 where he talks about sin. What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? What's the answer? No. Same two Greek words. No, may it never be. God forbid. Certainly not. It's, it comes across different in our text. Same, same two words here. No, no, of course not. Come on. For if I rebuild, track with the logic here. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is that about? The idea is this. Paul, in preaching the gospel, has been tearing down the idea that you have to be Jewish to go to heaven. He's taken a baseball bat to that idea. And everybody who's not a Jew should say amen. See? Exactly. Yes. I don't want to have to become something that I'm not, you know, like an, another, another ethnic group, uh, cultural background, to, to, to get to God's heaven. No, no. Paul's been taking a baseball that, bat to that and saying, no, it's by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's how you get to heaven. Anybody does. Come on. So he's been, he's been going after that. And he says, if I rebuild what I tore down, now, if after me d- dismantling that whole system, if these other guys are right, that are coming along saying, got to be circumcised, got to keep the law of Moses. If they're right, now I've got to build again what I've been tearing down. No, 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 no. We're heading down this other path. This is the gospel. For through the law, he says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What is that? I think, he's, I think verse 20 explains it. I think verse 20 explains verse 19. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, when Christ died on the cross, there's a, a, a unity. When I, when I trust Christ, I'm, I'm identified with him. I've been crucified with Christ. When Christ died on the cross, I died. He died to pay the penalty of the law for lawbreakers. See? He paid the penalty for everybody who's broken the law, like you and me. So when Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty. He paid the penalty for us. It's no longer I who live, Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, faith in the Son of God. Debate about whether it's the faith of the Son of God, faith in, uh, object, etc. I think Christ is the object of our faith, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, The idea is this, when Christ died on the cross, I died with him. Do dead people have to worry about keeping the law? No, no dead person gets a traffic ticket. Okay? So I died with him. I, my, I, in, in Christ, I paid that penalty, that death penalty that lawbreakers deserve. He paid that for me. So I don't have to keep going back and doing those things. I died to the law. I live now, Spirit of God in me. I live the life Christ rose from the dead to, to, to earn, to win. I get to live a whole new life. I don't have to worry about law keeping. That's one of his big arguments. I died with Christ. Dead people don't have to worry about the law. Christ paid the penalty for lawbreakers, of which I am chief, Paul would say. So I don't have to worry about it. He's, he's dismantling the argument of those people saying you have to keep the rules. I do not nullify the grace of God, which he would be doing if he said you have to work at it. 
I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. Oh, man. I want you to look at that section called Responding to God's Word. I'm not going to read it all to you. I want you to read those things because they ask you to search your own heart in a couple different areas. One, they ask you to, to, to wrestle with some issues of the gospel, things that I just said. Christ died on the cross for our sins. And let me just say this really clearly, best I got, okay? Listen up. If you've been a kind of a churchgoer, those, those morally good people, because you were raised that way, and you know, you'd say, well, I, I don't know how to do anything else. You're, you're that morally good person. Listen, for you to get to God's heaven, you need to trust Christ as your Savior from sin. Right? You, you, you do. You need to come the same way as anybody else. All of those good things, as good as they are to do, don't earn you credit in heaven. You need Jesus as your Savior. And if you've been trusting, some people trust their good behavior, they trust their church attendance, they trust their Bible memory stuff, they trust their confirmation or their baptism, they trust all kinds of good things to earn favor with God. If you're trusting anything but Christ alone, you need to repent of that now and trust Christ. Christ alone is your Savior from sin. It's him. Jesus paid it all. And if you're on the other side of that, and you haven't, you know, you weren't raised in faith, so to speak, haven't been, you know, don't have all the Ten Commandments memorized, you can't tell the books of the Bible in order, you couldn't quote John 3.16 to, 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 you know, to get you into heaven, good news, you don't have to trust yourself to get to heaven. You can trust Christ in him alone today, believing that you are a lost person apart from God, you've offended a holy God, Christ died in your place. And you can put your trust in Jesus today, be part of God's family, just the same way as somebody else who can tell the whole books of the Bible in their original languages. You get to go to heaven too because of what Jesus did for you. That's the gospel. It's amazing. Wow. Well, I also ask you here, I'd sure love to have you wrestle with the the ethnic and the cultural elements. Are there people, people groups in your heart you despise? You kind of cringe, you stay back from? I'm not talking about politics here and immigration stuff and things people argue about today. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how you, how you feel inside and how you interact with people who are different from you, whatever that group is. How about that for you? Are there people you kind of cringe from, cringe, hold back? Is, is that you? What's the gospel say about this? Well, I think you've heard some things today. Be in step with the gospel. Okay? I'd like to pray for us. Would you stand with me? And let me close us in prayer. Our Father, we are children of our culture, all of us, different cultures, certainly different families, but nonetheless influenced by what's around us. Sometimes in ways we don't even notice. Nose blind. And our Father, we so long to live in step with the gospel. I pray today for all who've who've heard this, those who will listen later, that you would challenge our hearts. Most of all, point us to Christ because Christ is the answer. He is. Christ is the only one who can break down barriers between racial groups, ethnic groups, cultural things, gender things over which we fight. Christ and Christ alone as we get in in line and step with the gospel. Oh God, help us. Individuals, us as a church, we want to live and step with the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for inhabiting this morning, uh, attending to the preaching of your word. 
I pray that this week we would honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.